Matthew 26, verses 1 to 16, and Ryan's going to come and read that for us. This is God's Word. When Jesus had finished saying all these things, he said to his disciples, As you know, the Passover is two days away, and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people assembled in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Cephas, and they plotted to arrest Jesus in some sly way and kill him. But not during the feast, they said, or there may be a riot among the people. While Jesus was in Beth Bethany, in the home of a man known as Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume, which she poured on his head as he was reclining at the table. When the disciples saw this, they were indignant. Why this waste, they asked. This perfume could have been sold at a high price and the money given to the poor. Aware of this, Jesus said to them, why are you bothering this woman? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. When she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. I tell you the truth. Wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then one of the twelve, the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and asked, what are you willing to give me if I hand him over to you? So they counted out for him 30 silver coins. From then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. Amen. And we thank God for his word. Well, let's take our Bibles and turn to Matthew 26, this super passage that we hope is going to bring us a very clear message and question into our lives this morning, a question uh, about whether we are devoted to Jesus or whether we are hostile to Jesus. Those are the options that are sort of set before us here. If you ever uh, find yourself in a group of people and conversations starting to dry up, I've got a couple of words for you that you can throw in uh, to generate a little bit of discussion. Brexit, there's a good word. Uh, throw that in and see what happens. Or if you find yourself in a more international body of people, throw in the word Trump and see what happens. Because there are people and terms like that that, that just generate discussion and division. They're, they're points of controversy. The thing is, though, if, if we were to revisit this in, in 10 or 20 or 50 years, we'd have to use different words, wouldn't we? Because, uh, well, we might still be living with the effects of Brexit, and dear knows what Trump will have done by then, but, but uh, w there will be new terms that, that, that will cause division and discussion. But one term I want to suggest to you that has enduring power to uh, generate division and discussion is not a term, it's a name. It's the name of Jesus Christ. Because then, in the future, and now, and 2,000 years ago, Jesus divided people. People's reaction to him is, is very, can be very, very opposite. 
Matthew, you remember here, has been uh, telling us about Jesus in this gospel, and he records for us uh, the last of these five big blocks of teaching that he's been giving us. And and there at the end of, of chapter 25, Jesus has been telling us especially about his kingdom, the fact that he's going to return to establish his kingdom fully. And uh, now Matthew changes the focus to the events of the death and resurrection of Jesus. All of this takes place just in the week before uh, the crucifixion. You'll notice down actually over the page in, in verse 17, we start to read the account of the Lord's Supper. So that's Thursday night. And uh, on the Friday, of course, Jesus is crucified. And as Matthew turns our attention to these pivotal events in the story of Jesus, he begins by giving us some pictures that show us that Jesus really divides people, or at least the reaction that people have to Jesus causes them to divide over him. Now, that ought not to surprise us if we've been following the gospel through. We might remember that Jesus spoke about this. Back in chapter 10, verse 32, he said this, whoever acknowledges me before others, I will also acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before others, I will disown before my Father in heaven. Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Really, stark words from Jesus, but also very realistic words from Jesus because people have strong reactions to him. They cause them to divide, and sometimes those divisions run right through some of the closest bonds on earth, the bonds of family. Some of us might be here today, and we might think, oh boy, this all seems a little bit of extreme. Why can we not just get on? Why do we need to disagree so severely over this? Surely it doesn't matter all that much. But if we find ourselves being moderate about Jesus, not wanting to be too for him or too against him, just, you know, mildly positive, it may well be that we haven't understood who he is, who he is, why he's come, what he asks of us. Because Matthew is holding before us here two roads. He's saying there's a road of hostility or there's a road of de de devotion. And really, he says, if we see who Jesus is and what he's done, then we should be running down the road of devotion, embracing devotion as the very core of our lives. So let's look at this. What's the first option as far as reaction to Jesus is concerned? Well, it is hostility, because Jesus speaks to his disciples, and he tells them that the Passover is about to happen, and that he, the Son of Man, will be handed over to be crucified. And then they focus, the camera, as it were, goes to the chief priests and the elders in their meeting in Caiaphas's palace. And they have a plan, a scheme, to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. Their power, of course, was that, or their problem was that, that though they were in power, it was a delegated power, and the Romans were occupying the country, and they could not actually secure a death penalty by themselves. So they either have to do this completely covertly and illegally, or they have to uh, generate some false charge against Jesus. Either could be in mind here in terms of their plans. But they, they know the outcome they want. They want rid of Jesus. They want him dead. They just need to work on the process. 
And, and they think that, that now is not the right time to do it because there are thousands of people pouring into Jerusalem for the Passover, and, and they know that Jesus has some uh, credibility with the crowd, and so they think they better wait for a while. Now, by this stage, we're, we're used to saying that the religious leaders are hostile to Jesus and so on, but we shouldn't let this pass without at least noting again just how startling what we see here is. This is not the work of some renegade mob. You know how sometimes we, we hear things that have happened and, we, and, and the official report comes out and says, well, these were just a few bad apples in the barrel. This is not the bad apples in the barrel. This is the very top of the barrel. This is the, the heart of the religious leadership that were charged to bring the people to God, and here they are plotting to kill God's son. The hostility that they have is astonishing. And yet, if anything, it is eclipsed by then what we read in chapter 26, verses 14 to 16, the betrayal of Jesus by Judas. Because Matthew highlights the awfulness of what Judas does here. He, he introduces him by saying that he's one of the 12. In other words, he's in the inner circle. He, he knows Jesus well. He's been with him constantly. Three years he's been with him, yet he arranges a betrayal. Sometimes people, you know, are, are sympathetic to Judas. They say, well, you know, Judas misunderstood things, and then he wanted to, to do this sort of big demonstration to try and force Jesus' hand to turn him into a political leader. Well, that's not what we see here. He goes by saying, what are you willing to give me if I hand him over to you? So Judas is thinking about himself. It's one of the key differences between Judas and the other disciples. The others see Jesus, they are attracted to him, they trust him, and then they, they ask themselves, how can I serve him? Judas, however, as he sees more of Jesus, seems to be repelled by him, but he asks the question, how can I make Jesus serve me? How is he useful to me? And you see, Matthew, in these two stories, the religious leaders and then Judas, is painting a powerful picture of what it means to be hostile to Jesus. It means resisting his claims upon your life. It means working to silence his voice. It means trying to press him into your agenda rather than bowing before him and accepting his and you see, Matthew is, is, is saying to us, look, this is what human beings are, are, are like. This is humanity with the restraints taken off. Here is humanity in rebellion against God. Remember, Jesus told the parable of the tenants, these tenants who had taken over a vineyard, and the owner is a long way away, and he sends messengers, and, and one by one, they, they abuse the messengers. Some of them they kill. And then the, the master sends the sons. Surely they will listen to my son, he says. And the, the tenants see the son coming and say, this is the heir. We will kill him, and then this will be ours. We want to be the boss. We want to be the owners. And you see, that's what we're like. We want to say to God, we want to be owners. We want to say, leave me alone. Do you recognize that in your heart? I see that in mine. As God presses in on us sometimes, we get more and more determined to go our own way. That spirit of independence is in your heart. It's in my heart. But here's the thing you see. Though we are self-centered as human beings, we're not in charge. 
Matthew makes that very clear here. Do you see how he does that? Jesus begins by saying to the disciples that he will be handed over to be crucified at the Passover, not after it, but at it. That's Jesus' timeline. But the Jewish leaders meet and they conspire to have him killed after the Passover when the crowds have gone home. That's their timeline, two different timelines. And yet which timeline is followed? Well, it's that of Jesus. He's in charge. He knows exactly how things will go and when they will happen. These leaders make their their corrupt decisions, but it is Jesus' agenda that is the one that will be followed because Jesus must die at the Passover because he is ultimately the Passover lamb. You know what the Passover was about? Passover was about celebrating the fact that 1,500 years earlier, God's people had been delivered by a, a, from slavery in Egypt uh, by the death of a lamb. A lamb was killed, the blood put on the doorposts, and, and the angel of death passes over the, the, the houses with the blood uh, covering them, and the firstborn of the Egyptians are killed. The people are rescued by the blood of the Lamb. And you see, despite what the religious leaders plan, it is God's agenda that Jesus would die then during the feast because why? Jesus is our Passover Lamb. He is the one through whose blood we are rescued. Jesus is, is, is in charge. It's all running to his timeline. Oh, that the evil leaders make their decision. They flaunt their independence from God. But none of it diverts Jesus from his agenda one bit. The disciples are able to pick this up later as they pray in in Acts chapter 4. You maybe know these verses. They pray and they say, Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand would happen. You see, they can see it from that perspective. They, They see that it's all running according to God's timeline. Two things that, 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 Im, that are implied by that, if, if that's the case, as it is. First of all, how, how, how foolish our hostility is. How foolish is the hostility of mankind towards God? We can be hostile to Jesus. Indeed, it's, it's where the human heart would take us. But he is the one who's absolutely in control. People are making their plans, but but it's all working out according to his plan. Now, why would we turn against such a one as this? How can you hope to conquer the one who conquers all? How how can you resist the one whose will is irresistible? How foolish is still that he is. Here's the other thing. If, If Jesus is in control, and yet he is taking deliberate steps towards the cross, laying down his life as our Passover lamb. How he must love us. No one's forcing his hand. No one's pushing him into a corner. He's in charge, and yet he he goes to the agony of the cross deliberately, systematically. How he must love his bride. If you're here in church today, And you've had that thought recently, maybe now, I'm so worthless. I'm so on the margins. In the grand scheme of things, I just don't matter. Isn't it true we hear on the news that that the great epidemic that is is crushing, rising generation is that of meaninglessness and hopelessness? If you thought that, 
Look at this Jesus who does not need to be here taking these careful and deliberate steps to go to the cross for you. How he must love you. Hostility. It's so easy for us. Yet why would you set yourself against this Jesus? That's one path. There's another path that that, uh, Matthew highlights for us here, and it's that of devotion, because in between these two examples of hostility, the, the focus is on devotion. Matthew tells us that Jesus was at Bethany, which is a few miles outside Jerusalem. During this week, he seems to have stayed there in the home of Simon the leper. He travels into the city, and, and while they are eating, a woman comes and anoints him with expensive perfume, pours it over his head. John identifies this woman as Mary, the, the, the sister of Martha and Lazarus, but, but uh, Matthew doesn't give us her identity here. Now, the disciples are quite negative about this. They say it's an expensive waste. They could have used the ministry, the, the money for the ministry among the poor, and it was exceptionally valuable. The scholars tell us that, that this was one of those sort of family heirloom things that was worth thousands of pounds in today's money. And, and John tells us again that it was mostly Judas who was behind this criticism because he was the treasurer and he was skimming off a little bit of the pot for himself. But Jesus does not share in the shock of the disciples and the thought of its wastefulness. He praises her. He says, she has done a beautiful thing, a thing that will be remembered. He says, there are always opportunities to help the poor. Our world will always be broken and unequally divided. But, but Jesus will only be here for a limited time. They should make the most of that. So, so, so Mary's devotion is what's commended. Remember, she's the sister that sits at Jesus' feet. She understands that Listening to him has priority over the clamoring tasks. And here, it seems that she understands that at the very heart of what it means to be a disciple is a heartfelt devotion, something that causes us to give ourselves to him and all that we have. Now, perfume in those days was used for a number of purposes, but it was especially used when somebody died. It was a hot climate. As the family waited to bury a body, they would have anointed it. The body was perfumed. It was washed and perfumed. And and you see, this sort of valuable heirloom perfume would have been used for that purpose. Isn't it odd sometimes, don't you know, that a a smell can, can bring back a memory more than maybe any other of our senses? You know, you catch a certain smell and you just, you're transported back to some event within your mind. And here you can just imagine that as, as Mary pours out this expensive perfume upon Jesus, the, the, the scent of it just fills the room. And in everybody's mind, they, they're transported to something that they've all been involved in in a different place. They've all been at a wake. They've all been at a funeral. And they think, this is the smell that reminds me of a funeral. That's what would have been triggered in their minds, death. And they don't make the connection. They're just thinking about the, 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 the money and so on. And though Jesus has said that he's going to be handed over to be crucified and the funeral smell is all around them, they're just thinking of the practicalities. But, but Jesus knows exactly what is going on. You see verse 12. What, 
When she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. You see, Mary sees this. She knows Jesus is going to die. The other disciples don't see it. And so because of that, their devotion is, is self, full of self-interest and half-hearted. But, but Mary knows what Jesus has come to do. Her devotion is, is full and full of self-forgetfulness. She doesn't care what people think. She doesn't worry about what others will, will say. She wants Jesus to know that she loves him and she wants him to know that she understands who he is and what he's come to do. So he, here we are, many of us believers in the Lord Jesus Christ today. Picture yourself in this story. Where would you have been? With the disciples sort of saying, what a waste. Or would you have been with Mary, pouring out your, your costliest treasure because you know that what Jesus is doing for you is absolutely precious beyond anything else? We might find ourselves to be naturally rather reserved people. We might not be exp particularly expressive or emotional. But you see, this example is here to show us what being a Christian is. It's not only about things to believe. Those, those are important. Our love has some content to it. Mary understands some things about Jesus. But it's not just facts, is it? She, she loves him. There's devotion there. You know, at the end of John's gospel, we're told about Peter's restoration. Peter has denied Jesus so dramatically, and, and now he needs to be restored. What should Jesus ask him in a setting like that? Is he going to say to him, we can imagine what the HR interview would be in the workplace interview today, what strategies are you going to put in place to make sure this doesn't happen again, Peter? No. Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? This is basically the only time when anything is done for Jesus during the whole story of the trial and crucifixion. And so this is held up, you see, for us as basic. Do we love the Lord Jesus? Jesus sums up the law. What does he say? Love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul, with all your strength and with all your mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. First Peter 1 and 8, though you have not seen him, you love him. As you think about Jesus this morning, do you love him? Oh, you know you don't love him as you ought. You don't love him as much as you would want to, but do you love him just even a little? Because that's at the heart of being a disciple. And, and, and what do you do if you're here today and you say, do you know, I, I, I look at that picture and I know where I would be. I'd be with the disciples rather than Mary because I, I, I don't love them as I should. I, I find myself sometimes being calculating, calculating and, and, and measured and, and, and thinking, what can he do for me not, rather than what can I do for him? How do, how do I change that? I I've, remember the old hymn, Lord, my love is, Lord, it is my chief complaint that my love is weak and faint. Is, is that your cry today? How do you change that? 
Well, what is it that brings devotion from Mary? It is that she understands what Jesus has come to do for her. She was, she was there at the raising of her brother, Lazarus. She saw Jesus weep at the tomb of her brother, even as he prepared to raise him from the dead. So she understood that, that she come to understand that, that for Jesus to release us from the, the clutch of death, he would have to submit to it. For him to submit to death was the only way that he could have us live forever. And, and that awareness, you see, of what Jesus is doing and the consequences of it that ripple down through eternity, that, that just melts her. It, it, it moves her. She just says, thank you, Lord. What have I got that I can show my appreciation to him? Here it is. Why use it on a dead body rather than on a living Savior? So if you, if you want to change, think long and hard about what this Jesus has done for you. Imagine his actions on your behalf rippling down through all of eternity so that in 10,000, thousand years, you will still remember the cross and say, Wow. One other thing we should see, this little story of devotion is sandwiched between two instances of hostility. Opposition of the leaders, the betrayal of Jesus. Matthew does this surely to highlight the right way to go, but also to show us that devotion is called for even in the midst of hostility. Mary doesn't say, you know, I'd, I'd really like to show that I'm devoted to Jesus, but this doesn't seem to be a very opportune time. It's not a good time to be too committed. No, she is devoted in the midst of hostility, in the midst of opposition and betrayal. And maybe some of us, I, I can think of a time, I could, mark it, I could mark it on that tree ring, I can think of a time when I thought, I know I need to be more devoted to Jesus, but this is tough just now. I'd like to push it down the road a bit. It's tough at university. I'll wait until I've graduated. I'll keep my head down for now. It's tough in my workplaces, but once things change, it might be easier. Then I live for Jesus, or amongst my family, or amongst my friends. The consequences of me throwing myself on Jesus wholeheartedly are just too great to see at the moment. Well, don't we see, Mary shows us, the time for devotion is now in the midst of hostility. Two ways to react to Jesus. He, he does this, doesn't he? he? There's a sense in which he can't help it. He causes us to divide over him, against him or for him. And Matthew is saying, as I now start to tell you about Jesus, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to paint the picture of what he has gone through for us. As I tell you the picture about Jesus, I'm going to show you how you should react. Devotion to the one who gave his life for me. Is that your heart this morning? Let's pray together.
Lord, maybe many of us can echo those words. Lord, it is my chief complaint that my love is weak and faint. So, Lord, we pray that you will help us to really see and know and feel what it is the Lord Jesus Christ has done for us, that we might be aware of his incredible commitment to us, that we might find our hearts melted, our, our affection set ablaze for this Jesus, that we might find ourselves, even in the midst of hostility, devoted to him. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.